Thanks, Joe. <laughs> Big passage, confronting passage. Uh, we should pray before we begin. Father in heaven, as we read your word today, remind us that it is good. Help us in response to glorify you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Today we move into a new section in the book of Romans. Uh, It begins in chapter 9, verse 1, and it will continue until the very end of chapter 11. And in it, Paul deals with what I think is the most widespread obstacle to Christianity. And of course, what I'm talking about is predestination, that doctrine that states that it is God who chooses who will be saved. And I think that no doctrine has prevented more people from coming to the faith than this one. And that's because it has to be grappled with virtually every aspect of our humanity. Now, let me list a few of those aspects for you. First of all, we have to grapple with the doctrine of predestination intellectually. And we, kinda, we have to kind of reconcile two different things. How is it that, on the one hand, God can be entirely in control of who repents and believes, and then yet still hold us accountable when we fail to believe? Like, logically, the two things don't seem to be able to coexist and and fit together. So intellectually, we have a problem with this doctrine. But we also have a problem with this doctrine emotionally. Uh, The very idea that God could condemn some people to an eternity of punishment in hell, which a place which the Bible describes to us as eternal fire and torment, that, that God could willingly send people to that place is emotionally sickening to us. Because how can a God who defines himself as love do that to a human being? Even if they're sinful, the idea that God could play an active part in what seems to be a punishment that is way beyond what is deserved is so emotionally disturbing to us that we don't want to have anything to do with him. So we have a problem emotionally as well. Now, I could go on, but I want to highlight one more. The doctrine is hard, perhaps the hardest, for us to stomach personally. Now, I would be very surprised if there was anyone in this room today who didn't have a close family member or a family friend who wasn't a believer. And so the very notion that their salvation depends not on anything they do, but on God's mysterious choice, well, it seems to rob us of all hope that they could be saved, doesn't it? Better to find a God who gives us a chance than to stick it out with the one that predestination gives us. And so the thing to get in all of this is that no matter which direction you come at it, this doctrine is prickly. But the reality is that whether you like it or not, there comes a point in your Christian life where you need to face God's sovereignty head on. Now Matt Chandler, he's an American preacher, he calls this spiritual puberty. I really like that. Because grappling with this doctrine and coming to terms with it, it's sort of like a coming of age for the Christian. Because when you get to this doctrine and you finally accept it, you are in the most profound way confessing that God is God and you are not. Now, you won't be satisfied by this talk. I'm just going to throw it out there early. We will not find a happy reconciliation in our mind or in our heart. You see, most of the things that God reveals about himself and calls us to believe are, to our limited creaturely capacities, reasonable, makes sense to us. But every now and then, he calls us to believe something that doesn't seem to be true or rational or reasonable. 
and he calls us to believe that it is, even when we don't see how or why it can be the case. Now, what he's not doing is he's not asking us to believe in something that is irrational. Our God is not an irrational God. But what he's calling us to do is believe in something that we ourselves can't reconcile, even though from his perspective as the divine Lord, it makes perfect sense. And so for us, the test of faith today will be whether or not that we can look upon the God who sovereignly saves those whom he will and say, I can't reconcile it. I can't make sense of it. It disturbs me, but I know it to be true. And so I will praise my God for it, even if other people say it's madness. So that's where we're heading today. So let's begin. Let's start with point one, the real problem. No doctrine appears in a vacuum, and this is no less true for predestination. And so the big question we get when we hit chapter 9 is this. What has happened to the Jews? Because the promised Messiah, Jesus, has finally come, but they haven't accepted the faith. In fact, they've rejected the faith. And Paul outlines the problem there for us in verse 1. Have a look. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, Blessed forever. Amen. And though it doesn't say it here, despite all of those things being theirs by right, they have received none of it. Now, when I left high school, there was one guy in my year that we all looked up to with awe and wonder. You know the golden boy, right? Every year has one of those. Uh, and when, when we looked at this man, you know, he was perfect. Academic, athletic, he was, he was the school captain, he had a strong Christian faith. He was the one that was guaranteed to succeed. Now, I'm 13 years out of school. What would you expect if you saw him today? You went to our 10-year school reunion, whatever it was, and, and, and you saw him. Would he have a beautiful wife and kids, a nice house in a nice suburb, a high-paying job? Maybe he's an elder at his church. Do you want to know what you would actually see? He's an overweight unemployed, unbelieving, dysfunctional, selfish, and lazy man. Everything that we expected to see has not come to pass. In fact, the opposite has. And that's actually what happened, has happened to Israel. And I want to take a moment together to understand the wrongness of the picture that Paul gives us in the first five verses of chapter 9. Because the expectation for thousands of years of history was that one day, through long-suffering and perseverance, God's word to this little nation called Israel would come to pass. And through the Christ, God's chosen Savior, they would finally receive the blessings of salvation. And the Christ, Jesus, has finally come. And so we look at Israel expecting to see the golden boy. And what do we see? Well, we see a lazy, out-of-work slacker sitting on the couch at midday watching Ellen. That's basically what we see. And our response to this picture is not to judge, but to yell out, this is wrong. This is Israel. This is the one who, these are the people that Jesus came for. It's sort of like your parents 
passing away and then leaving all their money to a stranger instead of you. It's not right. And yet somehow what we expected to see has not yet come to pass. And I'm assuming at this stage, small room, none of you probably are Jewish, are you? Background-wise. So why does this even matter to us if we can just be saved through Jesus? And what I want to suggest to you is that this should actually really matter to you. Because if God doesn't seem to be keeping his word to his people, the Israelites, then what makes you think that he's going to keep his word to you when he says he will save you when you place your faith in Jesus? Not much, right? If he's not following through with his original promise, why would he follow through with the one he's made to you? And so we have a vested interest in understanding why God has not broken faith. Because if he has then all of our assurance is gone. So we care about this. And so what Paul does from verse 6 is he gives us a theological explanation as to why things haven't gone wrong. What does he say? Well, he says to us there in that verse that it's not as though the word of God has failed. It may look like God has failed to uphold his end of the bargain, but he hasn't. And what Paul says to us is that if you actually take a closer look at Scripture, you'll understand why. And I want you to observe as we keep working through this passage today just how many times Paul quotes Scripture. He is trying to show us that the Word of God has told us to expect this. Because in the Gospel, God is doing something far more profound than just saving the physical nation of Israel. He will be doing that. He is doing that. But He's actually doing something far more profound. In the Gospel, He is working salvation in such a way that it depends solely and entirely on his free choice. Have a look at verse 11 there, and that phrase, God's purpose of election. What God is doing is working salvation in such a way that his purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So in other words, God is reserving for himself the right to do what he wants with salvation. His is the right to choose. And notice the contrast there is between what we do and him who calls. And the two are held completely separate. And what that means is that who God chooses to save is entirely unrelated to anything we are or anything that we do. Including, and especially in this case, our ethnic descent. And that's why he says in the second half of verse 6 there, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and here's where he quotes some scripture, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now remember your OT history. Remember Abraham had two sons. God had promised Abraham an heir and he promised it through his wife Sarah. But the problem was she was barren. She couldn't have kids. And so they decided to take matters into their own hands when it didn't seem like God was going to do anything. And Sarah takes her maidservant Hagar, gives her to Abraham and says to Abraham, have a child with Hagar. That way we can at least get you a son to inherit. But then God fulfills on his promise like he was always going to do. And Sarah gets pregnant. And she gives birth to a child as well. And so Hagar has Ishmael, who's about 10, 12 years older than Isaac, who is Sarah's child. And it looks like they'll both inherit until God comes in and he makes a choice. And he says that it is actually through and to Isaac that my promises will come to fruition. 
salvation, God's promises coming through his choice. He gives us a second example there in verse 10. He's talking about Rebekah. This is the next generation. This is Isaac's wife. But also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, so blank slates on both counts, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Complete reversal of what you would expect. As it is written, this is God speaking, Jacob I loved, Jacob's the younger, but Esau I hated. So again, we see God's choice coming out. You remember those industry super fun ads, you know, the, the, the kind of diamond thing, it's like compare the pair, same income, same super contribution. Well, here there's no weird escalator thing where one comes up and one goes down. They're exactly the same. There's no his fees are higher, her fees are lower, wherever it is. God chose before birth to make it clear to us that there is nothing that puts us ahead or behind the pack. What matters is his decision, and it rests entirely within his mysterious and unknowable counsel. And what Paul is showing us is that even from the inception of the gospel, when it was first promised to Abraham, until now, the recipients of God's promise depend entirely on who God chooses, not who we are. Not all descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, not everyone who is ethnically an Israelite will be counted among God's people. It was their birthright. To them belonged the patriarchs. This is verse 5. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. But that doesn't necessarily mean that every Jew will be saved. Why? Well, because God is working salvation in such a way that his purpose of election might continue. What Paul is showing us is that God's choice shapes and directs the progress of salvation history at every point. His word has not failed. In fact, you look at it closely, it makes sense of everything that we're seeing. Now, before we move on, I want to spend some time thinking about where our faith fits in in all of this. Because if we're not careful and we don't have clarity on this issue, then we'll end up adhering to a doctrine called Arminianism, which is not a helpful or true doctrine. Now, Arminianism, it's a view that arose in the early 1600s, and it was in response to the doctrine of election. And what it, what it did is, that instead of affirming that our salvation is entirely a result of God's free choice, it said that God chooses us, so it upheld this kind of idea that God chooses. But it told us that God chooses us based on his foreknowledge of who would respond to the message of salvation. So God knew that when he created all of us, if we all got given the message of the gospel, who would respond positively and who would respond negatively, and so he chose the ones who said yes. Now here's what Arminius, Jacobus Arminius, the man who started it all, said. I'll put this up on the screen for you. There's a picture and there's a beard. So yeah, he must be a theologian. Um, he says, since the Bible regards faith as a free and responsible human act, it cannot be caused by God, but is exercised independently of Him. Now, do you see what he's doing here? What he's trying to do is uphold man's genuine agency. What he's trying to say is that when we act, in this case, when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, 
that action is ours. We weren't forced, we weren't compelled like robots, our actions are free. Now, to his credit, do you notice the basis upon which he's making this conclusion? He's not doing it on the basis of an assumption of free will. He's actually basing it on what the Bible tells us about our decision to believe or not believe. Uh, and, and I want to just stress this because you will come across people who are Arminians um, in, in this sense. Um, there are a great deal of people in the world who are sincere, God-fearing, biblically-minded people who will still deny the doctrine of predestination and fall on the Arminian camp. I think they're wrong, but we need to be very careful that we don't just kind of create them out to be really stupid and unbible believing and, and that sort of thing. Okay, So he is striving here to adhere to what the Bible says. And in this case, his, his premise is entirely correct. Because the Bible does represent us as genuine agents who are responsible for our choices. So his premise is true. But my question for you, not rhetorical, I'll let you discuss this with the person next to you. What's the problem with his conclusion? Quotes up there, have a moment, discuss it with the person next to you. his conclusion ends up contradicting scripture elsewhere about the nature of God's free choice. In fact, it's this particular passage that it contradicts. Because in saying that faith is exercised independently of God, what he's doing is he's shifting the basis of God's election outside of God himself and he's placing it back on us. But what does the scripture say in verse 11? It's not based on our works, it's based on him who calls. Now, I can't say it better than a man called Douglas Moo. I don't have a picture of him, but he does have a beard. He's just got really big glasses. Um, this is what he says um, in response. The introduction of any basis for God's election outside God himself runs counter to both the language and the logic of what Paul has written. The only logical possibility then would seem to be to reverse the relationship between God's choosing and faith. As Augustine stated it, this is a guy from around 400 AD, very, very wise theologian, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. And what he's getting at here is that even our faith is a gift given to us by God as a result of his election. Now, does that mean that our faith is not genuine? No, because both the scriptures and our own experience tell us that we are not robots. But the scriptures actually tell us both things, that God is completely sovereign over salvation, and yet in some mysterious way that is not explained to us, we remain morally responsible for our choices. 
And the mistake that the Arminian makes is to attempt to kind of peer into this mystery of God and try and reconcile something that is not within his or her ability to reconcile. And so if you try, what ends up happening is you'll end up emphasizing one of those truths over the other and you warp the truth as a whole that God has revealed about himself and his world. We have to be comfortable to sit with these two things that we ourselves can't reconcile. And so that's Paul's explanation. God has throughout the whole of salvation history directed it in such a way that salvation is completely and entirely based on his purpose of election. And the basis of his choice is entirely within himself. It has nothing to do with us. Not works, not foreknowledge, just his choice. That's his explanation. Now let's deal with the objections. Uh, There will be a whole bunch to what I've just said, but Paul picks out two, one in verse 14 and then one in verse 19. Uh, And they're both, both essentially the same. And the objection is the same. It's this. How is this fair? Now let's start with the first one, verse 14. What does he say? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The objection sort of runs something like this. If God elects to love some and hate others, regardless of our works, then how is that fair? Sit with that for a moment. I think it's a legitimate question. Because it feels like a bit of a random lottery, doesn't it? Why would God save somebody like John Newton? You know who John Newton is, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace? He, before he became to, uh, came to Christ, was a slave trader. And so he was responsible for the death and displacement of thousands upon thousands of lives. So why would God save John Newton and then not save somebody like Oprah? Now, I'm just going to throw this out there, right? You've got to remember we need to be humble here. I am not in any position at all to tell you whether or not Oprah is currently saved or whether she will be saved. All I've got to go on is what she has publicly said about what she believes. And what she says she believes is not the gospel. Okay, So just roll with me here, but remember I'm claiming too much for myself. So why would God save John Newton and then not save Oprah, who undeniably denies the gospel and yet also undeniably is responsible for some of the most extravagant and consistent acts of charity and love? Where's the justice in that? Murdering slave trader, benevolent, wonderful, generous person. Let me show you how I'd answer that question theologically. I would say that if if you're asking that question, your mistake is to think that in this example, Oprah deserves to be saved. All of humanity, every single one of us, even the greatest of us, is sinful against God's standard of holiness. And so as such, all of us, even the greatest of us, deserve condemnation. And so we need to invert our thinking. It's not unfair that Oprah isn't saved. It's unfair that Newton is. You see, the issue at hand is not that justice is withheld from some people. The issue at hand is that mercy is given to some people. We've got to invert our thinking. Now, that's how I would answer the question theologically. And as answers go, I actually think that's pretty good. I reckon Paul used that, yeah? And he could have. It's a good answer. You can use it too in your apologetics. But what throws me is that that's not where Paul goes. Look at what he says in verse 15. 
This is how he responds to the question. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul's reason why God is not unjust. Are you ready for it? Because he's God. Try that one out on campus with somebody who wants to talk about the justice of God. I wonder how that'll fly. I told you, you would not be intellectually satisfied with this talk. But there it is. It is God's sovereign prerogative as God to have mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy. Human will, human exertion, it means nothing. Fairness doesn't even come into it. We are God's to do with as he wills. And I want you to notice, too, that it's not just one-sided here. It's not just having mercy. It's also to harden as well. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, the last time I spent some time with my godson, Eli, we were playing with building blocks, and it was so frustrating. Every time we got to five blocks high, boom, he'd come in and knock them down. Like, I'm trying to build art here. Like, I'm trying to show him the finer points of architecture and how you can build the tallest tower possible. And he's just building stuff to knock them down. It's as if he wanted the blocks and everyone else in the room to know that he was God and that they couldn't stand before him. And that's exactly what God does in Pharaoh. He hardens his heart and he builds him up to knock him down. He does it for a purpose. Look there in verse 17 again. He does it so that his power will be revealed and his name will be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, of course, this analogy breaks down, right? Because God is not a little boy just throwing his weight around, uh, indifferent to the fate of the blocks that he topples. Our God is principled. He is controlled. He is loving. And yet he still topples the blocks for the sake of his name. And this tells us something about our God and it tells us something about us. Do you want to know what it is? The fame of God's name matters more to him than you or me. Pretty full on, right? You might say it's a bit narcissistic, but think about it, right? It would be a foolishness for my godson Eli to treat the building block as important as himself. If you put both on a road and a car was coming at it, I know which one I'm knocking out of the way. It's not the block, it's Eli. And in the same way, I mean, that's an imperfect analogy they're all going to be, so just bear with me. But in the same way, God and his glory are more important than you. Now, I know that we aren't child playthings. We're people. We have value. And we have value to God. But even so, you've got to do the maths. Because creature does not equal creator. In fact, creature equals less than creator. He will do with us as he wants. And he'll do it because what matters most to him is his name. Hence, we see in verse 18 the conclusion to this part of the argument. So then he has mercy on whomever he has mercy, and he hardens whomever he wills. God is free. And then Paul's natural uh, second objection naturally follows. Have a look in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
Basically, it runs like this. If God will do with us as he wants, if that is his sovereign prerogative, then why does he still condemn us? Because if what you say is true, then that means that we are powerless. We are just tiny playthings with inescapable fates. So how is it fair that God can then hold us accountable? And again, Paul's response is just completely unexpected. He could have said this. He could have said, no, your response to the gospel matters. Yes, God is sovereign. But that doesn't mean that you just throw up your hands and abdicate your own responsibility. The two coexist. So repent and believe. Find salvation. Accept God's mercy. That is still your choice and you must make it. He could have said that. In fact, he does in the next chapter. But he's trying to drive home a point here that is so fundamental to God's program of salvation that it supplants even that. And it's this. Salvation is God's to dispense with as he wills. And the moment that you object to how he dispenses it is the moment that you forget that God is God and you are not. Look at verse 20. This is Paul's response. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? He says to we who object, who do you think you are? And he puts us in our place. We are not the potter. We are the clay to be formed as the potter sees fit. Now, you want to know one of the greatest sadnesses of my life? All of the new Star Wars movies. It began with The Phantom Menace. It will end with The Rise of Skywalker. They are all just trash, especially the first three. And you know the internet? The internet is full of the same question. George Lucas, what were you thinking? And I'm sure that Reddit and Tumblr and Instaface and whatever else is out there, they're all probably filled with the blog posts that all read 1001 Reasons Why I Think George Lucas is an Idiot. And do you want to know how George Lucas responded to the criticism that he got from people? He said this, If I want to paint my house white, then I will paint it white. You might think it would look better green, but at the end of the day, it's my house and I will do with it what I want. And what he was reminding people of is the fact that he was the director. It was his movie and he had no obligation to you at Yoda 593 or, or whatever it is that you're, you're writing under. He's reminding us that it was his to do with as he wanted. And God says the same thing to us. Have a look in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? He doesn't even address the objection. In fact, in the whole of the scripture, God never does. I told you you wouldn't be intellectually satisfied. God is addressing the more pressing problem that we would presume to know better than he does. Because that's what we're doing when we question God's purpose in election. We're claiming to see and know better than God sees or knows. And brothers and sisters, that's sin. In fact, that's the essence of sin. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They thought they knew better. And so rather than listening to God's good command, they disobeyed it. And you know what happened, right? They discovered that they were but men. They didn't get what they were so certain in their expansive, creaturely wisdom they would get. Instead, what they got was death because they didn't know their place. They thought they were the potter when really they were the clay. 
And this is something that we need to understand. We are not autonomous creatures answerable to no one. We're actually dependent creatures answerable to God. And it is God who tells us who we are. And he does that in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So who are we? What says there? We are vessels created to bring him glory. Let that settle for a moment. You thought your life was your own. No. That is about the greatest fiction our generation has told us. Because it's not about you. It's not about your self-fulfillment. It's not about your happiness. It's not about achieving your dreams. It's about God and His glory. And to that end, what God does is He divides humanity into two kinds. The first kind are the vessels of wrath. These are the vessels of dishonorable use, the ones prepared for destruction. These are the unbelievers, those who God has chosen to leave in their sins and remain under judgment. How do they bring God glory? By being judged, what happens is they reveal both God's wrath and His power. The second kind are the vessels of mercy. These are the vessels of honorable use, which God has prepared beforehand for glory. And so these are the believers, those who God has chosen to show mercy to and grant salvation to. How do they bring glory? Well, by being saved, they reveal God's mercy. (coughs) Now, two observations here. First, both vessels reveal something critical about the glory of our God. And therefore, both are necessary. Second, there is an emphasis here on God's mercy. I want you to observe that the vessels of wrath, they provide the backdrop for the revelation of the riches of God's mercy and glory to the vessels of his mercy. He actually endures with much patience the vessels of wrath in order to show mercy to those whom he has chosen. And you've got to remember, the fact that God saves is the wonder in all this, not that he judges. And so he has to put up with humanity's sin. In fact, he's been doing that until this very day. And rather than returning swiftly to judge... Because by doing, by doing the waiting, what he's doing is he's increasing to his glory the number of those whom he'll have mercy on. And so while we need to remember that our God is both wrathful and merciful, it is his mercy that is the central jewel in his glorious crown. And that's why we see in verses 24 to 29 that he opens the floodgates of his mercy to the Gentiles, even as he withholds it from all but a remnant of the Jews. Because his program of salvation is bigger than you or me. It's about him. It's about his glory being displayed through his purpose of election. So how should we respond? What are we supposed to do with all of this? Well, I want to suggest that we respond in two different ways. And they're there written on your outlines. The first is we trust God's goodness. Now, I said at the beginning that the faith... Uh, is trusting what God says to be good and true and rational, even if we cannot see how. Now, when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 33 and 34, 
He says to him that he will make all his goodness pass before him, and as he does that, he will proclaim his name. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that verse 15 of Romans 9 comes from this passage in Exodus. And this is what the Lord says, and I'll put it up on the screen again for you. Jump ahead. There we go. This is what he says. This is the name that he proclaims as he shows Moses his goodness. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, here's the next part of it, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, do you notice the two themes? You've got mercy and you've got wrath, justice. And yet God says to Moses, this is my goodness, not either or, but both and. Now, I have an Armenian friend who thinks that the doctrine of predestination undermines the goodness of God. And so she refuses to believe that God makes a vessel of wrath for the explicit purpose of smashing it on the ground. But God says, this is my goodness, knowing full well that to us it does not seem like it at all. And yet he calls us to trust that it is good. Now please hear me, trusting does not mean indifference to the faith of those you love. You see, Paul understood God's goodness better than you or I. And he can say there in verses 2 and 3 in chapter 9 that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. God's judgment is always a tragedy. But the moment that you can trust God, even as your soul is ripped apart at the prospect of God's wrath on sinners, is the moment that you get that God is God and you are not. Second, after we trust God's goodness, we praise God's glory. Listen to where Paul's argument is heading. He begins it in chapter 9, he finishes it at the end of chapter 11. If you flip over the page, you go to chapter 11, verse 33. This is the response that we are supposed to give to the things that we are learning. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. See, it's praising. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We are called to give God the glory that is due his name. And first and foremost, that looks like admitting that you do not know the mind of God, nor that you can understand his ways. So ours, ours is to respond to him in awe and wonder and praise him for his purpose of election and praise the glory that it reveals. So how about we do that in prayer now? Father, thank you for revealing to us your goodness in the gospel. We thank you that it is your purpose of election that stands firm. And we ask that you will, by your spirit, move us in such a way to trust you and your goodness. 
and to be genuinely delighted in the glory that your salvation plan reveals, even as we see your justice unfolded on those who do deserve it. Lord, thank you for counting us as vessels of mercy. I pray that we will not forget just how amazing that is. In all these things, we just acknowledge that you are greater and higher and more wonderful and wiser than we are. Help us to remember that all our days. Amen.